My name's Vaughan Smith, and as the founder of Frontline Club, I'd like to welcome you here. Uh, this isn't the first event we've done about WikiLeaks or Julian Assange. Um, in fact, I think it was nearly something like 13 years ago. Um, Julian knocked on our door, and he did a press conference. He knocked on our door on a Friday, and on Monday he had a press conference about the Afghan warlocks, which I'm sure all of you will know about. Um, so we started doing events here with him, and then when he was no longer available, we've continued doing events about Julian for all that time. Um, it makes you wonder. Um, I have, I must say, the most huge admiration for Stella, for Jennifer, and for Christian, for all the support they've done for Julian and for WikiLeaks. Um, it's been tireless, and I must say I really admire them, particularly Stella, for this extraordinary... <laughs> It's hard for most of us to even imagine the stress and the difficulty that every day must be for her, so I'd like to recognise that. Um, tomorrow, Julian, again, is in court. I'm not entirely sure whether he'll be allowed to be there or he'll be on a video link. Um, and um, it just occurred to me that it's not just Julian that is being scrutinised. I think it's the court that's being scrutinised. Julian is clearly a political prisoner. And it strikes me that in our country today, in this country, there's such a level of civic dishonesty. You have to wonder where that sort of thing comes from. And if the court is being employed, as it is perceived by me to be employed, as a vehicle of lawfare uh, for the powerful, for our political masters, to remove somebody who they feel their voice makes them uncomfortable. This is what perhaps promotes, as much as anything, um, those, that sort of dysfunction in our country that we see that's so rapid, what I call civic, civic disorder, the sort of civic dishonesty. Anyway, with that, that was all I have to think about it, and you're not here to listen to me. Um, so with that, I'd like to hand over to Chris Hedges, who will introduce the panel. Um, and thank you very much, all of you, for coming and discussing. Thanks, and I just have to say, coming back to London, it's always hard to come back and not see John Pilger. Um, and I just want to mention his name. I was walking by a discount clothing store. I'm embarrassed to admit this, and saw a white linen suit uh, and bought one. My wife said, "When are you ever going to?" But I did it uh, just to remember in a funny way, John, who could be totally irascible and impossible at the same time, but um, was an amazing journalist and really got what was happening to Julian from the beginning, and just did not let go with that kind of doggedness and brilliance. And he was a beautiful writer, so I just wanted to mention him as a journalist tonight. And, you know, he's kind of here. So uh, I'm not going to butcher your last name, Kristen. Oh, you're welcome to. Haraf Sadat. <laughs> Uh, Editor-in-Chief of WikiLeaks, Jennifer Robinson, uh, human rights attorney, Stella Assange, you all know, also uh, an attorney. Um, and uh, I guess we're going we're gonna to run for about an hour and then open it to questions. Um, maybe we should begin, because even I have questions, with uh, you, Stella, and Jennifer, just from the legal point of view, because the court never tells us anything. 
Um, so you know, we all kind of uh, are, uh, you know, wait, uh, you know, for Deus ex machina to appear out of the sky with some decision. We never know when. But maybe you can. Uh, I'll let you start, Jennifer, and then you, Stella. Just lay out legally where we are and to the best that you can what you expect. Well, first, thank you, Chris. Thank you for your work, and thank you for raising John. And I do think it's appropriate that we do talk about John. And I just want to share a little anecdote about him before we kick off. John was there at the very, very beginning. He was rallying people to, to post bail for Julian. At the very beginning, he was rallying other Australians in London. We talk about the Australian Mafia. John was really at the, at the forefront of that in rallying support for Julian right from the very get-go. He was invaluable to us as Julian's legal defence team at the outset in garnering that support and continue to be. So I really want to thank you for raising him and I'm sorry he's not here with us. The, the appeal this week is Julian's last appeal in the United Kingdom and we're seeking permission to appeal. So you'll remember we won the case back in 2021 on the narrow grounds that Julian's on the, on the basis of that it would be oppressive to extradite him because of the particular prison conditions he would face, the oppressive, darkest black hole of the US prison system, prison conditions he would face, combined with his mental health picture, depressive illness, and autism diagnosis that he would be caused to commit suicide. That is the accepted medical evidence before the courts of this country that if he's extradited to the United States, it will cause his suicide. Um, it couldn't get more serious than that. The USN offered an assurance, a conditional assurance, which is even an assurance is not worth the paper it's written on from the United States, as Amnesty says, and then in this case it was conditional, in that at some point in the future they won't put him in those particular prison conditions, but they will do if he does anything to deserve it, and the people who decide that are the intelligence services who tried, who wanted to kidnap and kill him. So the intelligence services who have the power, who wanted him dead, have the power to put him in prison conditions that will cause his death and we have no ability to judicially review that. Nor did the British courts in this country allow us the opportunity to test that assurance before the court at an evidential hearing. So it's extradition by diplomacy. That's where we got to. We're now appealing the decision to extradite him on that basis. Uh, we're appealing the Home Secretary's decision and the decision of the district judge to, to all of the grounds that we lost in the first instance. So you'll be hearing from us this week on free speech, this is an unprecedented prosecution. It's, the Espionage Act has never been applied in this way to a publisher and a journalist. The fact the US is exercising extraterritorial extra jurisdiction over Julian as a journalist who is publishing information outside of the US and yet will not give him constitutional rights at the same time. Uh, the, free, the fair trial aspects of it, that he won't get a fair trial if returned to the US. Um, the fact that once extradited, the US could add additional charges that could expose him to the death penalty. These are the arguments you'll hear this week, but if we are unsuccessful in getting permission on even one ground, that's it. This is his last appeal in the United Kingdom. We will not be going to the High Court. We will not have recourse to the Supreme Court. Our last attempt at appealing to protect him from extradition is the European Court of Human Rights. <coughs> and to say a quick word about that, if we lose this week and we have to go to the European Court, it is not a given that we will get provisional measures to protect him from extradition. It is an exceptional measure. There were 63 similar type applications made to the court last year in deportation and extradition cases. One was granted. And we all know what happened when that one provisional measure case went forward in Rwanda. The political backlash that we saw in this country towards the European Court's jurisdiction. So Julian could be extradited and very soon. 
and that's how serious it is right now. You have a law degree, come on. Well, I mean, I think the the big picture here is that uh, Julian hasn't even been able to appeal. Um, It was his permission to appeal that was rejected, and that's the decision that we're trying to overturn. The High Court, which is the second of three levels, didn't even want to hear his arguments. We put in an an application that was uh, 152 pages long, and it was rejected in a a three-page decision, which didn't engage with any of the arguments, simply said there was no arguable point uh, of law. Um, Julian should have been granted an appeal on each of these, of the points that we raised. Uh, and none of them were granted, and it was dismissed in a very um, disturbing manner. And uh, one has to understand that this is a political case, um, that the courts are not behaving in a predictable manner. In fact, um, we have to prepare for the worst case scenario. There's no point preparing for an optimistic scenario because when you consider what an optimistic scenario would be, i.e. him winning this round, it would only mean that the court has agreed to hear an appeal on one of the points or several of the points and many more months, if not years, in Balmarsh prison. punishment by process. Yeah. Stubble, just if you could run through quickly the litany of legal anomalies that have defined this process from the beginning, um, any one of which should see this case thrown out of court. That's what's always stunned me, starting, starting with UC Global and filming the or recording the meetings with attorneys destroying attorney-client privilege. In, in any court of law in Great Britain or the United States, that's it. The tribes, and yet they just violate their own rule after rule after rule. And that that has always struck me. The, 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 the you know I don't know whether to call it farce or pantomime or what. You know it's a it's a show trial. And when you get into those details, which maybe you can just lay out a few, it becomes completely apparent. Um, that this is not a legitimate judicial process. I think that's absolutely correct. It is pantomime. Um, Julian's imprisonment is done through legal sleight of hand. The extradition itself doesn't deal with the merits of the case. Um, We can't interrogate uh, the uh, veracity of the statements of the prosecutors who have completely uh, misrepresented uh, WikiLeaks um, activities and, and actions and publishing. Um, they've, they've brought an Espionage Act prosecution, for goodness sake, uh, for the most important material uh, that journalism has ever seen as a, as a compendium of, um, of state 
illegality and torture and systematized uh, arbitrary detention and, and civilian killings and the horror and and uh, catastrophe of the Middle East of the wars in the Middle East. Um, so this this prosecution should never have been brought in the first place. Um, but once it's brought, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a trap because once you engage in speaking about the process, you sort of legitimize it as you go along. Mm. Uh, you're 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 caught in a well. Surely he'll face a fair trial. Hold on, can't possibly face a fair trial if the case should never have been brought because what the United States is doing is criminalizing journalism, um, and there's no public defense and there's no, you know, so 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 it, it's kind of channel, channeling Julian into um, a state of perpetual defenselessness. Um, and this is this is kind of the the some of the difficulty that that we face that the violations are so egregious that you're almost you're not even speaking the same language. Uh, the 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 spying on on Julian's legal meetings with his with his lawyers discussing his defense strategy and so on. His his legal documents were shipped off by Ecuador to the United States. Um, the the plans to assassinate him, um, and it's met with non-engagement because it's just so um, it, it's so extreme. Um, so in a way, when when we're when I'm asked about the process or you know what happens next or well what happens once he faces trial in the United States. It's like, for goodness sake, he's facing 175 years. Can one be even, who can entertain a, the argument that, that he could possibly face a fair trial under any circumstances, if you take that even in isolation? So uh, this is a bit of the, it's, it's kind of a, a little bit like when Julian was inside the embassy and I thought, how do you possibly translate the situation into the in, in a language or in a way that people just walking down the street would understand and and believe. Um, I think we've got through a, a set of pretty extraordinary um, things that have happened, whistleblowers um, in Spain actually giving physical evidence of what was going on inside the embassy to Spanish police who then raided um, the security company, obtained hard drives with conversations with Julian and his lawyers evidencing this and then, um, you know, uh, uh, emails with instructions from, from the United States in English talking about how to, how to spy on Julian without the Ecuadorians knowing and, you know, just such a, such a huge body of evidence to show that this was actually happening, and then an investigation in the U.S. that then prompted this disclosure about Pompeo plotting to assassinate Julian, um, and then the lawsuit now against the CIA, uh, which the CIA is trying to shut down by invoking state secret privilege. Um, 
so it's quite it's quite a it's quite extraordinary really that we have a case where we know so much. Um, but translating that into a way where that public awareness is really uh, there, uh, that that's the challenge. Well, we'll talk to Kristen. I think the problem with translating it into public <coughs> awareness is that the press has not done its job. That's pretty obvious. They have come around a little bit at, uh, in the lead up to these two days. Uh, there seems to be awareness now that this is, a, is about them. It's about uh, their work environment, and they seem to care about that. Uh, but you have to remind them this is not about journalists, it's about journalism. And, uh, and in the end, of course, it's about people's right to know. And, uh, that realism is, is uh, it's sort of slowly getting, getting there, I, I feel. So I, I'm really hoping that the focus uh, tomorrow and on Wednesday will be on the court. As Juan said, it's very important that the, uh, the courts uh, will be scrutinized and the proceedings there. Um, the, uh, and mind you, I have to mention that the fact that journalists are having a really hard time actually getting access. Live streaming from the court is denied to everyone who is outside England and Wales for some reason. Uh, so it, it is. It is. It's, it's like uh, they they don't want the scrutiny. So the realization is there. They are. They they have been constantly trying to block access. Reporters without borders have mentioned the case of Julian Assange as uh, the worst case that they've been trying to monitor in any country. I mean, they've been going to Turkey, other countries. The problem of being an NGO monitoring the Julian Assange case has been bigger and worse than they've experienced in all these other countries. So it speaks volumes about the case and, and the entire thing. Uh, yes, of course, journalists should have uh, been more agile and scrutinized the entire thing. And we're still, we're still seeing popping up. We're still having to shoot down misconception and part of the slander that has put that on for years and years and years. Uh, just this morning, I saw a legal expert on, on, on one of the television stations here in the UK. Uh, talking about the so-called assurances or something that was something to, to hang your hat on. A law expert. On, uh, and, and for heaven's sake, uh, Amnesty International scrutinized it, and as Jen said, said it was not worth the, uh, the paper that is written on. It's, uh, it's a, you know, basically assurances that they will treat him fairly. It's a, it's a statement. It's a diplomatic statement. It has no bearing in the U.S. And uh, the the Bureau of Prisons in the U.S. is notoriously independent. Uh, John Kiriakou, the CIA whistleblower, told me the story that you know, when the judges, in his case, when he did a plea pardon, a deal, uh, uh, recommended he would be put in open prison for the short period of time that he had to serve. But the Bureau of Prisons said, well, we don't care what the judge says. We're independent. The only organization that has a say in how Julian is treated in the U.S. prison is the CIA, the very agency that had plotted to <coughs> kidnap and assassinate him. That's how severe it is. So this document, the so-called assurances, is, is, not, is worthless. And I, I must say that, that from a judicial perspective, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, but, but from a common sense perspective, to be allowed, even in an appeal court, without sending the entire case back to, if it was so important, it should be heard in entirely on a lower, lower stage, because it changed everything. 
to overturn a decision on the basis of this piece of paper just shows how utterly, utterly bent the system is and how you just cannot rely on it. And I've lost all faith in it, I have to say. The only inkling of a, of a, of a chance that, that these two judges will overturn the decision of the colleague is if there's a powerful <laughs> public pressure, powerful scrutiny, and uh, of course that possibly the politician will wave their hands and say, no, we cannot go any further. This uh, is becoming an embarrassment of, to this country, which it is. And it is an embarrassment to this country that Julian Assange is lingering in Belmar's prison for almost five years. I want to ask you about the CIA in Vault 7 because I think that was a turning point. But I met Julian through Michael Ratner, who was representing him. Michael was a very close friend of mine and a wonderful human being and just a courageous lawyer and amazing um, guy. But he always told me, and he did, he was the one who got representation for the people in Guantanamo. I mean, he just had this long, amazing career. But he said, it's without the people in the street, I can't do my job in the courtroom. I can't. There has to be that pressure to essentially wake the judicial system up. I want to ask, and I'll start with you, Kristen, about Vault 7. Because uh, the Obama administration decided not to uh, ask for Julian's extradition for what they call the New York Times problem. The New York Times problem, which was the Guardian's problem, and El País's problem, and Lamont's problem, and Der Spiegel problem, is that in partnership with WikiLeaks, they published the same documents. Uh, and that's why we had all this charge, that uh, false charge, that Julian was trying to assist Chelsea Manning with getting because they needed something else. That changed after Vault 7, the Trump administration Cross the Rubicon instead of charging whistleblowers who had provided information to the press, uh, and Obama was very aggressive about this. Um, the, the Trump administration charged the journalist with espionage. Just explain. I mean, it's always my reading that um, that the engine now behind the extradition is the CIA. Uh, explain what happened with Vault Seven and how things changed after Vault Seven. Once you start, Kristen, then. I think you're correct in that evaluation. This is the, 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 uh, the driving power behind uh, this uh, persecution of Julian now is the intelligence community uh, or, and or the military intelligence interest in the United States. They are the, these are the, the powers that, that want revenge and they want to see him dead. It, it, it's, it's as obvious as that. Uh, the Wall Center release, which was exposing the, uh, the, uh, the, the cyber tools of the CIA, how they could basically break into your telephones and your, your cars and, and computer system. Even and, when they're off. Sorry? Even when they're off. Even when they're off, yeah. Um, and it was obvious they had a public interest to expose that this was in their arsenal. It was the most embarrassing leak in, in, the, in, in CIA's history. And the fury was obvious. And uh, you have to remember that at that time, uh, uh, Mike Pompeo was the director of CIA. This is in the early years of 2017. And shortly after, in his first public uh, uh, sort of speaking engagement, he went to the podium and talked about the, the, the gravest danger facing the United States of America, which was Al-Qaeda and WikiLeaks, the journalist organization Al-Qaeda. And it's then when he carefully turned to this uh, um, definition of WikiLeaks, and it was, we didn't realize that at the time, I did not realize how serious this was when he said this is a uh, um, WikiLeaks is a non-state hostile intelligence service 
nobody, everybody dismissed it as, as being sort of hot air at the time. But it was not. It is, it was, the lawyers came up with as a legal definition that they could hang their hat on in their assassination plot. Because you can kill a foreign agent that is hostile, right? That's what, that's, that's what CIA does, it, it kills people, right? And so, and of course later that plot was, was, was realized and discussed in the highest chambers of power in the White House um, and given a go. So that was a, a, a turning point. And I think that this is still the power that we are facing, more so than President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, or Attorney General Garland. <coughs> it is that power, you know more about the details of how that works on the inside. Uh, uh, I don't know fully the entrails of it, but uh, we have uh, past history to rely on to see what the fact it can have. So that is, the, that is in my opinion, uh, the, the, the dynamics and the politics that is pushing this case. And, uh, and the reason why we, we have Julian Assange as a political prisoner here in London. I, just to add that the, the Trump administration was actually very, very transparent about the shift um, in their uh, <coughs> forget exactly which document it was, but it was kind of their national threat framework type, the way we see the next five years. And they identified hacktivists, leaktivists, and public disclosure organizations as their greatest threats. And of course, Julian and WikiLeaks fell into the third category um, as, a, as a threat model to, to the Trump administration, public disclosure organizations. Basically mentioning pillars of democracy as a threat to the <laughs> Well, just on, on the CIA point, I, I will never forget uh, getting off a plane in the United States to the new to reading Mike Pompeo's comments, and it was immediately clear to me what they were doing, which was to use these semantics to create a new category for WikiLeaks that would allow them to pursue WikiLeaks in a different way. And it's similar to the kinds of semantics we saw around Guantanamo Bay. Uh, and thank you for mentioning Michael, who's a dear mentor of mine. It's, it's a sad reflection of how long this case has been going on that we've lost so many friends along the course of it. Michael Ratner being a really important um, to me and to Julian. Um, but as soon as Michael Pompeo made that statement, I actually gave a speech with the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, David Kay, at UCLA that, later that day. And I stood up and said exactly that. This is exactly the kind of semantics we saw the Bush administration engage in around Guantanamo about unlawful enemy non-combatants. New, these new phrases that did not exist under humanitarian law, which were invented <coughs> to lock up people in Guantanamo for a really long time. And when I heard this language, I immediately said, they are going to use this to pursue WikiLeaks. This is a new kind of language which they will use to make it possible to prosecute Julian and to cross this threshold. I used those phrases in front of the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, and within Days, Jeff Sessions, the then Attorney General, came out and said prosecuting Assange is a priority. And that's when the drums really started beating for this indictment. So I think we have, we have to look at this indictment, and we tried to argue this before the court action extradition case. This <coughs> indictment was driven after the CIA publications. They're prosecuting him for what happened before, but the impetus to prosecute him came under Trump after WikiLeaks published the CIA publications, and Mike Pompeo was gunning for this. 
I want to ask about the British courts. So within the American court system, the CIA is virtually untouchable. Um, they have all sorts of legal mechanisms, uh, anti-terrorism laws, SAMs, uh, you know, Immunities. immunity, everything that essentially makes them untouchable. But we see, and I, I think all of you are right, that this is being driven. How do they exercise that kind of control within the British court system? I'm not sure to say that they exercise that kind of control. What's been concerning is the way in which the court rejected our arguments about abuse of process raising these issues. So I was spied on as a lawyer. I've seen recordings through the context of the Spanish criminal proceedings of my meetings with Julian, videos and recordings of my legally privileged meetings with him. I have had to sue the British government for spying on me, which they settled. Um, not just spying on me, but spying on me and information sharing with the United States as a result of the Snowden disclosures, which they settled. Um, but if we look back historically, for example, at the prosecution of Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers leaker, he was a, a whistleblower, not a publisher, but prosecuted under the Espionage Act under Nixon. What had that case thrown out? Breaking into his psychiatrist's yeah. office. That was sufficient under the Nixon administration to have the entire case thrown out with, with prejudice, which meant they could never bring it again. In our case, spying on Julian's medical appointments, spying on us as lawyers, seizing legally privileged material, the list goes on and on and on <coughs> of the abusive process. And what does it say about our democracy today that us raising these arguments went nowhere in the British courts and that this, in, this prosecution continues in the United States when there's been far more abuse than what we saw under the Nixon administration, what does that say about our democracy today? Well, I'm, I'm curious because it's just a given within the American court system that the CIA is untouchable. And, and, and is the British court system now so decayed that it, it just bows to any form of pressure or is it replicating the kind of power the CIA has within the American court system? I guess I'm asking a question about what's, what is happening within the British judicial system in terms of it's, uh, it's, it's clearly dancing to the tune that they play. And I guess I'm asking why. Um, is it just because the whole system is decayed? Is it, or is it, I mean, the American judiciary is, you know, not in good state shape, of course, but you, you, it's just we know as a reporter, you can't, if, if you can't go up against the CIA. And what, what's happening internally, as far as you can tell, I guess I'm asking both of you here. Well, I, I, I think things are a lot more open in the U.S. than there are, they are in the U.K. Um, just beginning with a, a cultural skepticism of um, too much state power. Um, even in popular culture, when you see the intelligence services uh, portrayed here, they're usually portrayed as competent, um, you know, admirable, honorable, uh, all these things. Whereas, yes, there's some of that in the US, but I also see a lot of um, popular culture where the CIA are the bad guys. Um, you don't have that so much here. Uh, and uh, I think there's a, things are a lot more sewn up here, I think. Um, and it's less transparent. Um, 
starting with the um, well, declassified has done a lot of work looking at the at the uh, judges involved in in this case, and um, I, you know, I have to be careful with what I say uh, because we're going before the judges tomorrow. Um, but have a have a read. Um, there's uh, it's very small. It's a small world at the top. Um, uh, the of the establishment here, um, and it's very integrated. And Julian offended uh, all those networks. Uh, so I think there's there's some of that. And then there's also kind of a, a practical aspect, which is in extraditions. Uh, you know, it's it's ninety nine percent politics. If this were Rus a Russian Russian extradition request. Um, it would it would have been thrown out from the get go. It wouldn't have been certified. Uh, you know, a, 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 a journalist publishing evidence of war crimes committed by the state in the context of a war, um, and then the Espionage Act being used for receiving, possessing, communicating information about war crimes to the public received from an insider who was a whistleblower. I mean, you can't even it blows your mind to even uh, transpose that situation into uh, a different country. But of course. It's the United States, and there are all sorts of internal arguments that are invoked. Like, of course, we trust, we have to trust our close, you know, uh, friends in the United States and the integrity of the judicial system. And if there was intelligence uh, interest in doing as they, as as the judges kind of. Uh, um, uh, refer to the CIA assassination plots, interest, intense interest, of course, um, uh, then uh, we're not going to question that. And so there, there, it's, it's just kind of a, a revert to a formulaic um, um, get out. Uh, because they're our friends, and our friends are d fair democracies that, that don't do bad things. And of course, um, everything everything we know contradicts that. Right, beginning from from the torture the torture program to black sites to Guantanamo Bay and so on. Like this is this is a country that has found a million different ways to break the law and to break international law and undermine the. International legal <coughs> system and to and to torture and to kill and so on. That's who we're dealing with. But you're dealing with a kind of dual register. I mean, to a certain extent, I wonder how much of it is careerism. Um, they know if they render the decision that is that the state wants, it's very good for their career. And we have seen judges. I think of I don't know how well known the Attica uprising is in the UK, but the, there was. Uh, you know, those who stood up for this was the broke into a prison, killed 39, shot dead guards and prisoners. And, um, but, you know, judges that they were just, their careers were destroyed. Um, and uh, Declassified has, as you point out, uh, detailed the links with the defense industry and, you know, 
you know, so it's it's a select group that is embedded within the intelligence services of the defense industry, but also um, <coughs> they know the cost. I don't know what you think, Jennifer. All I'll say as counsel who will be in court tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> um, okay, I'll say. <laughs> is that those who end up being appointed to the judge are typically establishment, to, to, to end up in a position where you're appointed to be a judge. And so the judiciary tends to be rather conservative. <laughs> Let's talk a little, I want to talk a little bit about the press. Um, and I think following this over the years, and I just want to say coming out, I worked 15 years for the New York Times, coming out of that culture, um, for people who don't come out of those institutions, it should be clear that from the inception of the 2010 Iraqi war logs, uh, those within institutions like the New York Times loathe Julian Assange because he shamed these institutions into doing their job. And they had to print that material because if they didn't print it, they would be exposed as lapdogs to the elites and stenographers to those in power. And this has traditionally been the case. So that's why, and I've heard people raise it, you know, after this information was published, you saw the first probably institutions that began this long character assassination um, were The Guardian, The New York Times, my old editor Bill Keller and others. Um, and this letter, which is good, that was published by uh, Lamond, and uh, I, my understanding is that was pushed on them by the, by the lawyers, who said, uh, you know, this is not to uh, call for Julian's releases suicidal. Um, if Julian is extradited, if he is found guilty, uh, then, and I published classified material in the New York Times, just to possess classified material, much less to publish it, 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 it becomes criminalized. It's the death of investigative journalism into the centers of power. It's over. It's finished. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the, uh, you know, the consequences uh, for the press from this case. And I think that that is what got a lot of us initially uh, who saw it behind it. Let's talk about, you know, let, God forbid, let's say Julian is extradited, let's say he is found out. What does that mean for the press? And, and, and just one more thing, watching it from the United States, you're watching a journalist who's not American, who's WikiLeaks is not a US-based publication, uh, he was not leaked the materials in the United States, and it's this message that you can seize a journalist, no matter who they are, no matter what nation they're from, no matter where they are, and through what the euphemistically called extraordinary rendition, I think the consequences for the press are absolutely terrifying. And maybe we can start with you, Kristen, and everyone can address that issue. Yeah, I mean, the precedent uh, being set uh, is dawning on, on, on journalists probably gradually and it is the, the reason of course when we, we had the rather ship turnaround in into support by our former media partners uh, 
back in 2010-11, the New York Times, the Spiegel, and uh, the Guardian, and others who were part of that uh, uh, media alliance uh, pushing out the, uh, uh, publishing the, uh, the, the Iraq war logs and the diplomatic cables and the Afghan war logs. It's, it's out of self-interest. It, it is dawning on them. And the, the, the precedent is, is, is extremely serious. Uh, and for some reason, for example, here in London, we had a meeting last week with the Foreign Press Association with over 100 journalists. Uh, the, the foreign press in this country seems to get it more than the local journalists for some reason. They do understand, uh, even from, uh, coming from countries from the shakier past and, and dictatorships and living memory like Latin America, they do understand what this means. And, and, and it, it is serious. And, and, and that is the, this precedent is, 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 is so chilling. But I'm, we're always talking about what if he is extradited. And I just want to mention the fact that the persecution of Julian Assange has already had a serious chilling effect. And it has already set an example for others from less democratic countries or dictatorships to go after journalists. We do have uh, we, we do have examples from China, from the Azerbaijani president, and from Russia, where they cite Julian Assange as an example. Why do you think you can criticize us when we have Julian Assange sitting in prison? This is the exact word of the Azerbaijani president who shot back and fired back at a BBC reporter. How can you criticize me for lack of press freedom when we have Julian Assange in prison? So that is, that is the bad inspiration they get. And uh, you have Evan Gershkovich sitting in, in prison in Russia being charged with espionage. What is the difference between Julian Assange and him? And, uh, so Julian Assange is a prisoner, a prisoner, a political prisoner. And we saw on Friday what can happen to political prisoners in other countries. So it's a serious matter. Um, so I, I see, I, I, I feel that throughout this, this long saga, it's 13 and a half years since we were here, actually, in this club preparing the release of the, uh, the Afghan war diary. The chilling effect that the, the, the persecution of Julian Assange has already had. We've seen raiding even in, in the ABC offices in Australia. <coughs> they demanded access to computer to try to find a whistleblower. Unprecedented. Uh, and and ex so the examples have been highly up. The damage is, has already been done, but the full damage will be done if it's actually done. So it is so important then to to put the line in the sand. This needs to stop here for it to be reversed. Just to reiterate what Kristen said, this precedent means that any journalist anywhere in the world who's publishing truthful information about the United States could be prosecuted, extradited to be prosecuted in the United States for publishing that information without constitutional protection. And that is a terrifying precedent. So, and it's not just about what, as Kristen said, it's not just about what it means here. And we've seen ads placed in the newspapers here by the unions and free speech groups saying the UK is no longer a safe place for, place for media workers because of Julian's, the extradition case against Julian. Um, 
But it's what it says about to the rest of the world, as Kristen said, it's diminishing the moral authority of Western liberal governments to raise free speech concerns, but it's also putting people at risk elsewhere. And I want to recognise Jan Dundar, who's here, uh, a Turkish journalist who was imprisoned in Turkey. He was explaining to me, we talk a lot about this, so we talk about the fact that Evan Gerskovich is in prison and Putin says, well, what do you, when Blinken's saying, you can't prosecute a journalist for espionage, you should be released, and Putin says, well, what about Julian Assange? Similarly for John in Turkey, when he was imprisoned, Julian's case was raised um, and used as an example by the Turkish authorities about why they can do this. And so it's not just, this is not just about Julian's case, it's not just about the cases that will happen in the future, but it's about what's, what's happening in other cases in different jurisdictions around the world and the precedent that's being used to justify this kind of treatment to journalists. I think we've crossed a threshold beyond which there's no going back if this case goes ahead. And it is a terrifying precedent. Um, and it's, it's frustrating to me because, as Christian said, we have been standing on this stage, and thank you to Vaughan for hosting us over the years, saying, making these points, saying, stand with WikiLeaks because this will affect you. This will affect you, and if you think that this precedent won't be used against you, you are naive. It took until President Trump calling the, the, the media the enemy of the people for the press to suddenly wake up to what was happening. And the years that were spent othering Julian and WikiLeaks, trying to put them in some other kind of category, when they are all engaging in journalistic activity, you cannot distinguish between what Julian Assange and what WikiLeaks does and what the rest of the media does. You cannot distinguish. And if you think that you can other them over here and somehow, by doing that, you have shot yourself in the foot <coughs> and your own protections. As far back as, I mean, national security journalists have got this from the beginning. I remember being in the US at Chelsea Manning's pre-trial hearing, and the national security journalists who were there covering it were saying to me, Jen, this is terrifying. This is going to chill national security journalism altogether. And they were right. But they were across it. And it's taken a really long time for the media to get on board. I think the failure of the media to get on board earlier is what made it politically possible for the Trump administration to indict Julian. But now we need a really big push to stop this because it's not just about Julian, it is about what it means for journalists everywhere, for journalists who are in prison in Russia, for cases like John's. We have to stop it. I don't have much to add other than it's a, it's a race to the bottom. Um, and uh, yeah, the media has, has played a, a very uh, bad role in keeping people ignorant of, like, maybe giving them completely misleading information so that they don't have the elements to really understand it. Um, the othering of Julian and WikiLeaks and not really engaging with the, with the indictment itself. I mean, you still, you still have to, you know, correct journalists who say, Oh well, this is this is about hacking, and it's just like how how many years of um, of and how many articles and how many explanations and how many how much debunking do you have to do to uh, you know to get through to them? But um, sometimes I think it doesn't it doesn't really matter. There are some journalists that are gonna be hacks and arguments are just kind of deployed as, as weapons 
Um, and if you shoot that weapon down, they'll just come up with another. And it's just positional. It's just basically projecting their alliance to, um, to, you know, power, basically. Um, and in fact, they don't. Those specific journalists who are hacks um, don't want to hear the. They don't want to engage. They're not interested because uh, they see their role as further the interests, furthering the interests of that power. Yeah, I think it's an important point. Unfortunately, you know, elite institutions like the New York Times, it's a fairly high percentage, and and it's not just furthering the interests of power. It's furthering their own careers mm -hmm. um, because that's how their careers advance. And if they actually do journalism, they become a management headache. Um, you said it's presumably brief. Uh, in my formative years, I mean, I, I still revere the, uh, the, the New York Times for uh, you know, the, the Pentagon Papers, which we mentioned here, uh, Tommy Ellsberg. Um, may he rest in peace. Um, it, he com came over here in, in, in 2010 in October for the Iraq release, and uh, I met him at the home of, of Gavin McFadden, uh, another great support when we miss greatly as past. And I, I recall how, how energized he was. It was like in his 20s, he was running up and down the stairs and he just couldn't control himself and saying, I've been waiting for this for 40 years. Finally, finally. <coughs> and he just, he couldn't sit down. And it was like, you know, he just got a plane from America and he was so energized by what was going on. And it was so supportive. But he, he told me as well, if I was, I was going to, to this, through the same thing as I did in the 70s, early 70s, 71, um, I would never have seen, uh, in the today's system, I would have never seen the, the, uh, uh, a single day as a free man. It, we have totally changed. And it was, a, it was an eye-opening for me that we, would, we were in a worse state and then in the darkest hour under the Nixon administration. That's how corrupt the system is. And that's how lame the media is. And another issue that has been raised here was about the endless fight to correct the misconception, which comes even from our media partner who know better. You know, for example, there was this irresponsibility about throwing out the information, uh, uh, data dumping, putting lives at risk, picking up the, the talking point of the, uh, of, of the Pentagon uh, and, uh, and uh, and the uh, American administration. Nothing is further from the truth. Nothing is further from the truth. And you know, before the publication of the Afghan warlords, Julian was working tirelessly night and day to do harm minimization, redacting 15,000 of the entire documents of the Afghan warlords. And uh, Mark Davis, an, an Australian journalist and lawyer, was actually following him around in these rooms here. and. Uh, uh, the rooms that Juan supplied us. Thank you very much for that. Have you paid the bill? No. Uh, and, and he has testified. He was witness to the fact that the media partners had no interest in the reductions. They thought it was a nuisance. That, he, that Julian was taking it too far. The same thing applied in the October release of the Iraq wars in a bigger media alliance, which I partly had to manage was like herding cats. We had to postpone, the demand to postpone the release, and we did for two weeks. 
because we were not finished with the, re the, the reduction process. I will not, uh, the, 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 the trouble with pushing them to accept it, and they were actually threatening to go early without the raw documents. And has it, I called the bluff, you're not, you're not going to do that. You would not, never dare to do that. Uh, they were thinking we were going too far in that process. But the care that was put into the reduction in that, that, uh, that uh, uh, Iraq uh, uh, war logs uh, basically got us criticism for over-reduction. Journalists were criticizing us. And then we can talk about the, the capable gate release, which was a, 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 a really a careful system. And then they take, these media partners and the journalists take part in echoing this uh, irresponsible data dumping where it was careful management of data with real responsible management of the material with a harm minimization process in mind, which went further than our media partner wanted, which went further than anything that I had experienced before as a journalist for 20 years in the mainstream media world. I just want to close before we open to questions. I think we can't leave without talking about the physical and psychological cost to Julia, which has been immense. I don't think very many of us, probably any of us in this room, could endure what he has endured and maintained uh, his integrity and strength the way he has. Um, I think Niels Melzer, what he called a slow motion execution. It's just, you know, along with egregious violations of traditional norms, um, they have used the punitive power that they have going all the way back to his seven years in the embassy. And the reason he was seven years in the embassy is because the British government would not allow him free passage to the airport. That's why he was there. And I guess, Stella, maybe you can just address that before we get questions. Well, I think the, the very s <coughs> massive impact this has had on Julian, um, it's been a, a constant decline because uh, what I, and I really see it when I see footage from, you know, <laughs> five years ago or eight years ago, ten years ago. I mean, the, the decline is steep, and he's e aged <coughs> prematurely. How could you not? Um, we don't know the full extent of the impact on his physical health, his uh, psychological state is a constant struggle. Uh, there have been very, very dark moments inside Belmarsh. <coughs> uh, and we're going into a, a very difficult week as well, uh, which always comes with stress and sleeplessness. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's, there's never a a time of recovery in the middle of this. It's just one battle and then getting through it and then <coughs> decline and a further battle and getting through it and decline. Um, and uh, 
five years in, in Belmarsh is, no one can deny the, the harsh um, treatment that, that Julian is being subjected to just indefinitely into the future in the worst possible environment in the, in the UK prison system. Um, but he's, he is uh, helped by the enormous support there is, you know, and the knowledge that that support is growing, that there's initiatives all over the world, really, um, the Austrian Parliament, um, honorary citizenships in Rome, the journalistic community in Europe, giving him, you know, membership for the Bulgarian and the Serbian and the Italian and the um, German uh, journalists union, uh, declaring that he's one of them. Uh, all of these things are so important and keep him going, of course. 